uh, welcome. We'll just we'll just get in this podcast. Yeah, Let's just do it. Going, Let's roll man. with this. So, yeah. uh, welcome to the Conspiracy Dad podcast. I believe we're tracking over there. We're good, right? Audio is good. Everything's good. Um, yeah, but before we get into the episode today, Dave and I were just talking and uh, talking about film stuff. But my point was being on set recently, uh, the idea of what is a professional. Yeah. And both in the music world, in the film world, I think in any world, I, I kind of take it as, um, so me as a professional singer, what does that mean? What's the difference between me and anybody else who thinks they can sing or wants to sing? Yeah. I would say the difference is if you hire me to sing in a professional setting, not that I will, won't make a mistake, but I can almost guarantee you that I will hit the song and the note and the lyric that I'm supposed to hit when I'm supposed to hit it. I've made mistakes, obviously. You've been witness to such things. Likewise. But, <laughs> but especially if it's like a like a national anthem kind of moment or like a in a, in a, in a wedding. Beautiful. Like, like, yeah, yeah. You, you have me singing your opening song at your wedding. I can guarantee you, I am not going to miss that opening song. And it's, that's what you're paying for is that Dante's got that opening song locked down. There will not be an issue. Yeah. We don't have to worry about it because he's the professional and he's taking care of it. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of an experience I had on set where, um, very talented people, very good equipment, the moment is now equipment doesn't work correct correctly and somebody on set doesn't know how to fix the problem. That's that moment to me where it's like, you're not a professional. Totally. Like, you're, yeah. you're paying for that moment. I got, I got a 10 minute window to shoot. And if you're as, as harsh as that might seem like, well, can you, can you help that the equipment malfunctioned? No, but you could have a backup ready. Yeah. You could know, I guess for me in that moment, that's what I would say is that if you hire me to shoot in a 10 minute window, I can guarantee you my equipment's going to work and I'm going to have, a, it's, you're going to get your shot. And if you, and if you're not getting your shot, I wouldn't consider myself a professional. I don't know. What do you think? I agree on a lot of positions. Like uh, a lot of what I did at the radio station was mm -hmm. managing equipment. Right. And we would do uh live remote breaks and yeah, it got to be a real point of pride for me to to go, we will be on the air. You know, like the generator's not going to run out of gas. The battery and the microphone's not going to go bad. How do I know that? Because I have tons of extra gasoline. I have tons of extra batteries. I have a backup for the microphone. Like like you said, will will this will this the signal from the antenna be as clear as day? Well, some things are a little bit out of my control, but to the extent that I can keep variables under my control, mm -hmm. then yeah, no, we will be there. There are going to be extra jumper cables. In the I think band. it's okay to not be there yet. You know what I mean? Like uh -huh. everybody has to start somewhere. Yeah. And I've worked with lots of creatives that are on a path towards considering themselves a professional, mm -hmm. whether it's graphic design stuff, web design stuff, video production, all of that. Everybody starts somewhere. Yeah. I just think that um, when you're when you're on that, like, how do you know when you've crossed over to I am a professional? Mm -hmm. My point would be that is you'll know it because you'll have a, a sense of confidence in what you can deliver, and you'll know 
yes, obviously lightning could strike and everything could, yeah. it could be something completely unforeseen. But as far as on your end, is there anything that's evading your performance that you kind of, that moment where you like, I got to Google this, I got to go figure out, you know, exactly what it is. <laughs> no, like you, you don't have that. And if you, if you are Googling stuff, you're just not a professional yet. You're still yeah. learning. You're still on that path. Yeah. It all comes from uh, preparation and that's something I get from like uh, some of my favorite musicians I listen to interviews on. Um, or when you talk about when you have me, if you hire me for singing at your wedding or if you hire me for this performance or that, I think as a bass player, I'm going, you know, if we're going to play for three hours, I promise it won't be a dumpster fire. Even if I've never heard the song, like the, mm -hmm. the, the bones I'm going to drop, the missed notes are going to be in the key that we're playing in and I can walk to get somewhere mm -hmm. to make it sound right. You know? Um, so yeah, I think you're right. Being a professional is. Do you remember um, like that transition though? Because there is like a financial, I remember doing open mics for years. I remember like putting in your time yeah, yeah. and uh, people start to pay you as a professional and how you like work that up, you know, to where you get to where when you are operating as a professional, you kind of have a standard of, well, this is what I charge for this thing, this service or mm -hmm. this, whatever it is I'm doing. It is um, like, you don't go from nothing to two grand a night. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I still haven't done that. Yet. Yeah. Well, <laughs> oh damn. I didn't mean to let that, I wasn't supposed to t say anything. No, uh, but you get know what I'm saying? Like it, there, there's a bit of a journey there and, yeah, and I don't, yeah. I mean, obviously the joke is like when you're quoting a project, well, what, what's your, what's your quote? It's like, well, how much do you have? You yeah. Know? Right. Like, <laughs> but you know, you have to gauge where you're at. And, um, I yeah. think to just be ready to, I, I still stand by when we went out to Nashville and Ed, Ed cash did my first mm -hmm. big record, whatever. Um, he gave me a guarantee. I don't know if you remember, were you there? I don't know if you're there in that conversation or not, I don't but think so. guy has lots of Grammys and he was basically, you know, I'm paying him independently to produce my record, but he, you know, he's like, I guarantee, I, I stand by everything that I do is what he said. I have eyes and ears on everything. And at the end of the day, if you're not happy with a track that I produce for you, you don't owe me a dime. And I really like looking around his huge house and at his Grammy, you know what I mean? Is that moment where I was like, Oh, well, that's how you get to this level is you have, like I said, he had a level of confidence yeah, where he's yeah. like, I know you're a good enough songwriter. I know your material. I know I'm a good enough producer that I can give you songs that are going to really impress you. Yeah. And he stood behind that. And I mean, yeah, every track he played for me, I was like, great. I got no, you know, like it was, yeah. it was as good as he said it was going to be. But I also felt like that was a cool moment where I thought, yeah, we should, in this industry, at least like you, you gotta stand behind your work like that. You have to say, and I've done that too with video work. Like Nick and I have said with clients, I mean, I do stand behind it. If I have a, obviously you might get some crazy unreasonable person. That's like nitpicking something yeah. stupid in the, and you're not going to give them a full refund. But honestly, if anybody had a legitimate complaint where I dropped the ball, I would be perfectly fine saying, take your deposit, no hard feelings. Right. You know, yeah. I screwed it up. My bad. You know, yeah, I agree with all that. If you are at a level where you can guarantee your work, you don't have a nice house with nice things in it by giving away a lot of money back 
to people that are yeah up on that game yeah i think so, so. i think so i think yeah. that um but you also that's how you i think get to that position it's all about reputation and you don't you you you're not going to be getting hit up by major record labels to produce records if they think for a minute you might not actually deliver on sure. you know what I mean? yeah. they're hitting you up for a reason it's because they know you're that kind of guy who's yeah. going to deliver mm -hmm. uh, a grammy winning record you yeah. know so part of that is not being petty i just read a quote about that this week not being just, petty or not being tom petty uh, no you want to be you want to be tom petty, petty. <laughs> i mean petty as in the adjective um like uh when you talk about let's say you had a client that was being ridiculous and wanted their deposit back and you're thinking to yourself like you know maybe that's on me maybe it's not um i guess the point i'm making is the concept there is your reputation is built on an overall scope of work mm -hmm. and if you get into the weeds on you know on a on a guarantee on a job that uh that is debatable Mm -hmm. like what a professional would do is kind of go look i i delivered what i said i was going to but if 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 this is going to spoil the relationship yeah you know that's fine. probably what i would do yeah um i'll make it right as best i can and keep moving forward um yeah the shop i work at same thing you know if if it gets to be a recurring issue with that client then you just know it's not a well, productive relationship and I, i've had clients like that that um there are clients that you fire yeah, just because they're not worth the, right. the headache. And, um, I still think even in that case, we left those situations as, uh, you know, gracious yeah. as you yeah. can. Mm -hmm. And it's not like you say to the client's face, right. you're fired. You just say, Oh, I'm sorry. This isn't working out. No hard yeah. feelings. We yeah. got, you know, let's just, let's just part ways. Um, yeah, I, I haven't had a lot of those, but I've had a couple that it's just not, you know. That reminds me of a dad hack I thought of this week. Oh yeah, let's hear is, it. Uh, dad so, hack. <laughs> so the the pastor at church last week was making the point that all men are like still just pretty much ten year old boys. Um, and he was kind of making the point. All? That, uh, he said all. You know, well, like let me hear this. Sounds kind of Protestant. Yeah, and I well, funny thing is, so yeah, you're with you're exactly where I was when I heard him say that. I was kind of like, oh, I'm not. I'm <laughs> I'm way more evolved than that. And he was making a joke because he's talking about the dynamic of a marriage, and uh, you know, he's specifically citing the verse that says something like, uh, "Wives respect your husbands, husbands love your wives," mm -hmm. and the the concept is, wives, we're all ten year old boys at heart. And, you know, just tell us our muscles are big and that'll go a long ways. And likewise, husbands, say nice things to your wives, you know, compliment them on their earrings and that sort of thing. Just like my daughter's six, but by the time she's 10, you know, just saying your dress is pretty, that carries, goes, goes, goes a long, long way. way. Yeah. So he makes this point and I'm sitting there like, that's so ridiculous. I'm not a 10 year old boy. I'm a man. <laughs> Fast forward like three hours we're at our friends and I'm throwing the football around in the backyard with my boy and his buddy. And I made like a fairly athletic catch, like on the run. 
And I looked right at my wife, like at the patio, <laughs> to see if she saw it. And she didn't care. She didn't. Well, yeah, I was, but I was like, oh gosh, yeah, I'm just seeking that validation, just like he said. Yeah. You know, and I guess I say all that to say when you say when you fire a customer, you don't say you're a stupid customer, you're fired. Um, I guess it depends on the situation too. There yeah. might be a situation there where are it's times, warranted. But the dad hack I thought of when I realized, like, I'm a ten year old boy, just like. The pastor says all of us are 10 year old boys. Then I thought, well, and girls are 10 year old girls. Women are 10 year old girls. They respond no matter the age mm -hmm. of the woman. When she walks through the door of your shop, if you say something not creepy, but pay them a compliment, they're not going to be upset with you. They're going to respond well. And um, I thought, so what if you use your dad skills that you would use on your 10 year old boy, like, you know, positive reinforcement you know, dangle mm -hmm. the carrot rather than the stick. Uh, my water says, my wife, my wife says, water the flowers, mm -hmm. you know, don't spray water on the seed or the weeds. And I was like, what if you try that on adults? Like use your dad skills to jujitsu mentally on yeah. adults. And I did it this week, like in my emails to some of our problem customers, I was giving them like big compliments on the stuff that I wanted to see more of. And now I'm starting to see more of the behavior I want out of them. And I'm like, this is hilarious. I'm parenting that, grown ups. That makes me think of, I did a, a video production with a guy um, this week who he's a very big sales guy and um, his big thing he kept pushing, which I forget who he said, said it. It's not, he didn't claim that it was him, but he was saying, no one cares what you think until they think that you care. Yeah. And that was his big yeah. thing. He's like, you, you, you can't, go into a situation assuming that people are going to care what you think. Uh -huh. It's like, you have to go in assuming they don't care what I think. And so your strategy is to make them think that you care. I like that. And a, a big part of that is compliments and is sure. coming in and saying, you know, you walk into uh, somebody's house that you don't know. And, you know, you see, I think he's talking about, you know, if you see their family pictures, like who are these beautiful people, you know, or whatever, uh -huh. showing that interest, complimenting their family, people that, that, just like the 10 year old boy, but I, I would say it goes beyond the 10 year old boy. It's everybody like, sure. It's yeah. important. I, I think it is important, not in a manipulative way, but it is important to compliment people and to remind people like, and this guy wasn't doing it in a weird salesy way. He was doing it in a real, real, like he's a devout Christian. And he's like, no, I actually do think that yeah. people are amazing and their, their lives are amazing and their families are amazing. And, you know, reminding people of that is important towards establishing a relationship with that person. And until you have that, until you have the relationship, then why would they care what you think, you know, yeah. and why try to tell them how to do things or what to think or why to, why they should do anything, you know, they're not going to care. I'm with you that, uh, it's not to be manipulative. It's not so that you can it take could from be them. manipulative, yeah. but you could also do it in a non-manipulative, just a decent human being way. Yes. Our great mistake is to try to exact from each person virtues which he does not possess and to neglect the cultivation of those which he has. Who's that? Uh, somebody smart. Some but guy. I wrote it down because I thought it was smart, and I just think that's what you do as a dad. Yeah. You look for – or well, that's what I'm trying to get better at as a dad. Look for virtues in my kids that I want more of and, like, highlight those. And I think same goes with clients or prospective clients, you go, yeah, like 
if you're talking about prospective client, you say, uh, boy, I can tell you have a real eye for value and quality. Mm-hmm. That must be important to you. And then, Buy this product. Yeah, speaking of quality, <laughs> I make a really good one. <laughs> yeah. Well, before we, I mean, we've already a little sidetracked. I, you know, I think too, you know, we've got, there is feedback we've gotten that like, oh, we need to be more on topic. We do probably, but at the end of the day, the reason that we're doing this, both I think me and I think you is like, look, I'm going to be dead one day and I want my kids and grandkids to know what I thought about things. And so I really don't want a whole lot of like pressure to say, oh, I need to talk about this specific conspiracy or something like that. It's a combination of conspiracy dad ideas and also just dads and uh-huh. just like, this is what I think. And if, if people resonate with that, great. Um, if they don't, I don't really care. I, mean, I, don't know. I know it's a terrible business model, but this is not a moneymaker. Well, yeah, so this far is this a, is less of this a business is, and more just, of a pursuit. Yeah. Exactly. So before we get into that, we were going to continue talking about the Laurel Canyon. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a perfect opportunity to talk about what has been happening on the lunar surface oh. this week. And you sent me a link to the Intuitive Machines lander that yeah, yesterday yeah. landed on the moon. And I actually listened to quite a bit of that, and I could not help that it was just... It seemed so... Um, well, first of all, I don't know if you, know, you knew that it actually landed incorrectly. Have you followed up on it? I watched. It fell over. <laughs> did you? Did I didn't you see know that? that? So the last I saw, and I don't. I was hoping maybe you looked at at what happened today. So today, being February twenty third, when we're recording this, the moon lander landed yesterday. Um, I watched around six thirty Central Time is when it touched down, as far as I know. Of course, allegedly. Yes, yeah, so, <laughs> man. I think I think it did touch down. Well, my point is. Okay, guys, we were playing golf on the moon. Yeah. We were driving around in a golf cart on the moon. We were doing backflips on the moon. Yeah. We were, we were like this, this, that's what I would mean by like it landed and it fell over. And they're, they're just, we're using all of the technology we have now in 2024. And it seems like we can barely get a, a, a a lunar, a remote lunar module just yeah. to land on the moon and take some effing pictures of things. Yeah, yeah. They couldn't even do that. It fell over. Okay. Yeah. And the whole time it's like, I want to be like, pause, 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 NASA. We were playing golf on the moon. What happened? Yeah. What it like, why do we need to send up a, a lunar lander? Why is a guy not up there? Why isn't a person on mm-hmm. the moon right now playing with moon rocks yeah. Showing us how easy it is to go on the moon when it's, they made such a big deal about like 52 years and no one's been on the moon, blah, yeah. blah, blah. And now we're barely able to get a oh, lander onto the moon. It's, it was a pretty lackluster finale. I was expecting to see something. It. I didn't see anything. The part I watched. So somewhere around three thirty was supposed to be the initial touchdown I, I log in, catch the stream. It says it's been pushed back to 4.30. Okay. I get on at 4.30 and they've got these broadcasters who are not broadcasters. <laughs> They're just NASA dorks that are doing their best, God bless them, to try and stall because now things are running behind and they're going, well, it's looking more like 5.30. 
I jump on at 530. Well, okay, it's running behind still. No, 530, I think, is when they actually, they were getting close. And they're just like. <laughs> this is all day. Yeah, yeah. It was. Yeah. I didn't watch. Because you until, texted it to me about yeah. 430 or yeah, so. Yeah, so 430 is when it started looking like they were kind of getting close. 530 is when I, I get on the stream and they're like, we're almost there. But they're having trouble with communication from the moon landing. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the guys are going, uh, standing by, we're waiting for some communication and the live feed that you could watch on YouTube at the time is just three shots of three separate rooms of yeah scientists, no moon tapping on a computer, no moon surface. And then finally, whoever's in charge of the operation, it's just an audio feed of him going, uh, well, we're, we're regaining the connection with the communication, but it is confirmed. We are on the moon. And I thought they faked it better last time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And if you were going to do that, why didn't you just say you landed on the moon three hours ago? That's all I kept thinking was all they're doing is showing how stupid it was to believe that they were on the moon 52 (laughs) years ago. When, if you even just, just think for a second about the difference in technology we're working with now versus back then. And the idea that they were were broadcasting live from the surface of the moon, that makes no sense whatsoever. The fact that you like today, our most high tech thing we could land there can't even land it, it fell over. They can't even keep contact with it. Why? What, What on earth has changed? Yeah. And then why couldn't you just send up a dude with a walkie talkie? You know, like, sure. what, yeah. like why, why did we have to, I mean, they, they keep saying it's so expensive, but it, it doesn't make any sense. Like you're already putting the SpaceX rocket into orbit mm-hmm. so we can see how much harder they've got like 16 payloads on that little lunar thing. You couldn't just put a guy on there. Like why, like how much, much heavier is a dude? Get a small guy, stick him in there. Send them to the moon. I I think everyone probably knows how we feel about it, but I I just think it's stupid. Yeah, it is. Your last episode, you said, you know, when somebody says that they believe we landed on the moon and it's silly to believe that conspiracy theory that we faked it. And you ask if they've read McGowan's book. And if they say no, you just go, well, I don't even know what you're talking talking about. about. Yeah. Yeah. All of a sudden after yesterday, I go, like you're saying, Okay, I'm the crazy one <laughs> that I think that this I, is I could not sense. believe when it fell over. I didn't Yesterday when, when I was I was looking for an update and they said, oh yeah, it felt it did plopped over. <laughs> and they they were like, we were reading all the uh they were all the sensors, they thought it was supposed to be vertical, and then they're like, Oh, it's it's on the y-axis because it fell over. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I just thought they can't even land. They can't even land like a super high-tech thing on the moon without it falling over. That doesn't make any sense. The, it just doesn't. No, it's. <laughs> it doesn't wash. They sure were patting themselves on the back yesterday, too. They were really proud that somebody yes. said on a microphone that we did it. But didn't you want to just yell at them like, we've already done this. We we played golf on the moon, guys. Yeah. You think you're some big. You landed a lunar I don't or know we didn't did. ever yeah. play golf on the moon. Like, like we were, we were there with a lot of guys back and forth, back and forth, apparently. But now it's just just getting there is a big deal, I guess. Is 
with that uh with the accusation that we we staged it here on earth mm-hmm. back you know 50 some odd years ago is there some kind of insight into where we shot the land moon? Yes. Okay. Was it at Lookout Mountain? Lookout Mountain, Mountain Laboratories. Seems like that no. That's that's the, the element that it. we missed. Okay. So uh, let's cut to we're back to talking about Laurel Canyon, and there was yeah. another element of the Laurel Canyon scene that is really interesting that I completely forgot to talk about, and that was Lookout Mountain Laboratories. I've got a kind of a synopsis. Okay. That I took down based based like. in Laurel Canyon. Um, this was. Uh, give, give the background, but it's it's, it's a laboratory yeah. owned by the federal government, operated for a long time, no longer now owned by Jared Leto. Oh, I didn't know to that. do God knows what. Yeah, like he bought it for like five million dollars or something like like seven or eight years ago. Yeah, nice. Which I'm sure it's a awesome hangout now. But yeah. Anyway, but yeah, it was. What year did it start? Built, what, what was their capability? Uh, built in 1941. By 1947, it was the world's only completely self-contained movie studio with 100,000 square feet of floor space. Uh, the covert, covert studio, studio included sound stages, screening rooms, film processing labs, editing facilities, an animation department. Helipo- it didn't have a helicopter landing pad? Too? Um, it doesn't. Oh, yeah, here it is. A helicopter pad and a bomb shelter. Um over its lifetime, the studio produced some 19,000 classified motion pictures. My addendum would read such as the Loon Man. Such as like Stanley Kubrick's yes. Moon Landing. <laughs> um, such technological advances as 3D effects were apparently first developed at the Laurel Canyon site. Uh, the following Hollywood celebrities had clearance to the facility, but none ever spoke on record of their work at the studio. So Ronald Reagan, you ever heard yep. of him? Yeah, heard Walt of him. Disney. John uh, Wayne. John Wayne, uh, Marilyn Monroe. I don't know if she's got any ties to the government. Um, let's see. Accounts vary as to when the facility ceased operations. Uh, some clay, some say it was in 1969. Others say it remained open longer. Uh, but it was only uh, brought public in the early 90s that this happened. Mm. So it reminds me of kind of the comments you hear about MK Ultra. Yeah. Where they get caught and they go, yeah, well, we're not doing that anymore, though. Yeah, <laughs> um, it was also, I think, uh, I think they did say like a lot of the um, nuclear tests that <laughs> the reason they had it originally was to process the films for the nuclear bomb yeah. test films. Yeah, which doesn't make sense because all you need is a dark room to do that. You don't necessarily <laughs> right. need a full blown except federal government spending maybe they just said well we need to process some film let's open a studio mm-hmm. you know the but biggest the baddest big, studio yeah. ever yeah um but that actually could go back to our nukes or fake podcast and you say like well obviously we realize now a lot of those films of the nuclear test were actually fake so they were just processing nuclear good. film tests they were also faking nuclear yeah. film processing tests. and manufacturing yes. nuclear film tests yeah, yeah. it Whew. The more we do this, the more I find out, the less crazy these sound. Of course, the more crazy I sound to pe- people that I try and tell them. You guys know about this place? It was the. Do you, when you ask people, no one knows about it, right? Like it's one of those things yeah. you say, look out mountain laboratories. I, mean, I just love this list of people that were involved Ronald Reagan, yes. Marilyn Monroe, 
you know, the girl that was hanging out with the president that got assassinated. Yeah. That uh, also dated his brother who got assassinated. Yeah. Does anybody I think mean, that's weird? <laughs> yeah. John Wayne. John Wayne. Who was caught on camera with Lee Harvey Oswald in the background. Yeah. No, that's not weird. Probably somewhere near Lookout Mountain. There are, uh, there are a couple of chapters in this book that I thought that's a separate episode all by itself. Like Harry Houdini is one. Yeah. Um, Graham Parsons is pretty interesting by himself, but um, the, um, Oh, uh, shoot. Anyway, using actors goes way back further than the sixties. The Lincolns. That's the one I was trying to cite. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The will. Yeah. The uh, John Wilkes booth. Yeah. Uh, That is, well, we'll do that on another podcast, but Dave McGowan also did a long series called How Everything You Know About the Lincoln Assassination is Wrong. And I'm halfway through reading that right now. And it is one of the points he makes. I'll just do this one tidbit is that it's not, I mean, it's not entirely correct, but he just makes the point that like Lincoln is written about as like the greatest president of the United States in American history. Mm -hmm. And he points out like, well, he couldn't be because he was actually never president of the United States of America. Oh, that's he funny. was not the 16th president of the United States of America. He was president of the northern states, yeah, and Jefferson yeah. Davis was president of the Confederate states. Okay. So the United States of America at that time didn't exist. Yeah. And you kind of think about it and you go, because then his point was like, well, what was Jefferson Davis then? You know, like who, what, what was, what was going on? It's like, well, the, it wasn't the United States that we have today. It yeah. was the Northern States and the Confederate States. Mm-hmm. I don't know how long it operated that way, but you know, the idea that he was beloved by all Americans or even voted into office by all Americans, that's just not true. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That gets skipped over in grade school. Well, he was the greatest American president that ever existed until Kennedy came along. Yeah. You know, because he was killed. Totally. But we, we don't need to get into that. But you're right. There's this long, well, it's like in Zoolander. That's fun, why it's funny that they talk about it. But this long history of using actors. Yeah. I mean, that's wild if you think about that film, Zoolander. Yeah, I forgot all about how they joke about that. It. Yeah. And then if you actually it's think about it. Preposterous until it's not. Yeah. And, t- and then it's like, well, actually, they've got a long history of using actors mm-hmm. to influence politics. Uh Speaking of actors, the Young Turks, I never could find, I mean, I didn't look long and hard at it, but I couldn't find why these this group of actors was called the Young Turks. I kept finding references to Young Turks as like actual political activists in different I don't know where world. that name comes from. So if anybody knows that, help me out. Um, Aren't the Young Turks, isn't that though a reference to the Ottoman Empire though? Yeah. Yeah. I mean- before in, Hollywood, it, right, exactly. But this, and then now actors, it just refers to that Chank Younger guy who's really obnoxious leftist on YouTube. Okay, so yeah, I mean, I don't even know who that guy is. There's a YouTube presence of crazy communist leftists that are called the Young Turks okay. now. Well, but, I wish they wouldn't put so many on Google because it's making it hard for me to find when I'm looking up Peter. But you're Fonda. talking about like Peter Fonda and uh, Jack Nicholson, Dennis Hopper, Warren Beatty, Roman Polanski. Guy, Miss Dennis Hopper. Yeah, he was fun. Yeah. Um, I couldn't, I was glancing through the book today. I couldn't find his background because I thought Which that one? would be uh, Dennis Hopper. I was, you know, they, so many times in the book, McGowan 
covers people's ties to mm-hmm. military intelligence and things like that. Hopper was in and around a lot of weird things in Laurel Canyon. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that comes to mind for me, like off the top of my head is I think he wrote, did he write, produce and direct uh rebel without a cause or no, how was he? In, I mean, I don't think he did. It was the other one. It was uh, easy. Rider. He did easy rider. Yeah. Um, the point is there's the rebel without a cause cure, a uh, curse. Uh-huh. And, you know, there are four actors that all died within, you know, less than 10 years of making the movie all died in the Laurel Canyon area. Um, James Dean being probably right. the most famous. Yeah. yeah he James. died in Laurel Canyon. I bet I can find it real quick because, um, yeah, of the four actors stricken with what has been dubbed the rebel without a cause curse, two were former residents of Laurel Canyon and another lived. Who are the other ones? Like Steve McQueen or something? Or uh, Let's see. I have to look that up real quick because this is just, this just is what I jotted down is that there were four actors, hmm. but I bet I can find that real quick because you're right. There's James Dean was the main that's interesting. Well, while you're looking that up, just to button up the weirdness of that Lookout Mountain Laboratories. So a lot of people have speculated. I mean, just the fact that we were operating that movie studio, massive, massive movie studio for decades, um, with, with, I guess, the only real explanation for having it was to process the films from the nuclear test. Seems like a lot. Um when you think about the, you know, the influence that, you know, we might have on Hollywood. And I mean, I, I think that could have been a huge part of, you know, like a hub for a lot of whether it was the music industry or the film industry, or it probably was just like their go to for any kind of propaganda Hollywood connection. Looks like that's where it was all happening. Yeah, that's one of the comments I jotted down too was like in conjunction with Vito Palikas and his freaks, which got to be known as the hippies going to all these clubs. It's almost like it was a coordinated idea to have these young Turks showing up at the same clubs mm-hmm. um, to where all of the national, like the public attention was on sunset strip and Laurel Canyon and the Hollywood area and these actors and these musical celebrities all in this one area do we know if that studio actually produced major films that we saw that like they came directly out of that studio i don't know yeah um i did find the four names though oh who were they uh james dean james coburn uh natalie wood and then there was one more they were all in rebel without a cause Um, yeah I believe so. Yeah. Natalie Wood was the last one to die. Who directed uh, Rebel Without a Cause? Let's see. Pretty sure Hopper was the director. No, I feel like I don't no? know if that's right. Okay. Well, you you tell me. You have the well, internet. I don't have the internet. No, but I'm, I'm going to Google. I'm going to chat GPT this. That sounds pretty good. This is... Uh, Listening back to our last one where I was saying... Who directed Rebel Without a Cause? How hard it is to Nicholas get... Nicholas Ray. Oh, okay. 
I don't know who that is, except he directed Rebel Without a Cost. He's the director of Rebel Without a Cost. Duh. Um, there, there are so many tie-ins in and amongst all of these things, and McGowan kind of weaves it like a quilt. You know, mm. I mean, it's um, Hopper is in and around so many dark stories throughout the '60s with all of these actors that it's hard to get like a narrative into a thirty-minute section mm. of a podcast. Um, and you know, again, I mean. We've talked Charlie Manson before, and I know Charlie Manson's kind of like the cliche thing to talk about in the 60s when you get into dark stuff that happened in California um, with conspiracy theories. But here you've got Charlie Manson, you know, hanging out with these actors <laughs> like he's and musicians and, and a lot of them exactly, not yeah. wanting uh, Neil Young being one. I think yeah, we talked on yeah, the last we podcast that, last week. Yeah. We thought he had auditioned for the birds, but he auditioned for Neil Young. When and Neil Young was on record, I mean, praising yeah, Charlie was, Manson before yeah. he was the murderer, yeah. that like he thought he was a genius, was awesome. like yeah. he should be this next big. Yeah. And then it's like, ooh, maybe not. You know? My favorite actor tidbit out of all that that had to do with uh, uh, with Charles Manson was uh, Angela Lansbury is the one that introduced Nancy Pittman. Uh, to Charles Manson and Nancy Pittman ended up being one of the really, and I, and wow. I, just, <laughs> I, I mean, I realized Angela Lansbury had a career before murder. She wrote, but in my head, that's who she is. Uh -huh. So just like picturing the woman from murder, she wrote like hanging out with dirty hippies that are going to go. Have you seen once upon a time in Hollywood? No. Oh, really? I've been meaning to watch it. My you wife doesn't fall asleep early enough. You have got it. to watch that. So the interesting thing about that, which is, I mean, yeah, it's an unbelievable film. And there's like Leonardo DiCaprio's character keeps coming around to, and obviously they, they, they make it Tarantino style, like yeah. ridiculously violent yeah. and whatever, but there's just this constant like theme where he comes back to, he's like these goddamn hippies. Like he, <laughs> he, you can tell even Tarantino hates hippies. Huh. And like the, the, and the, and the, he really captures that vibe of like, there were these, um, maybe, maybe like more liberal minded, uh, even peace loving people at the time, the anti-war people. And they hated these dirty, smelly, rotten hippies who got involved in everything and just made it stupid. It really muddies the waters effectively. It's crazy that, I mean, like we think of the government as inept and, you know, just full of bureaucracy and ineffective, but I don't know if, if they're not really dumb, they're really smart. Well, that's the, that would be the point is that that is a strategy yeah. that's been employed for a long time. As long as you can kind of, well, it's back to the same idea of that, that you're a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy. You're yeah, a nut yeah. or whatever. As long as you, it's an easy way to always keep a controlled opposition yeah, and yeah. the hippies were nothing but controlled opposition. They yeah. literally fabricated from the ground up by the CIA. Part of it that comes up throughout this book. And I mean, if you just, it, let's say you take the book out of your study of the sixties, there's a pretty wild amount of people that are hippies that have these incredibly like dark, violent deaths. And we're not talking about like, you know, I started thinking about, I was looking through the list of Laurel Canyon deaths mm -hmm. 
at the beginning of uh, chapter three in that book. And it's just citing one after another, after another. And I thought, well, you could kind of dismiss a lot of these as well. They did drugs. And when you do drugs, bad things happen to you. Didn't he give like a number though, where it was like one and Oh yeah. Last week we were 500 people. Like if you do, if the same stats applied to like just general population, you'd be like, people are dying left and right. It was, yeah. Within, yeah. The numbers start to, the the murders kind of creep or the excuse me the untimely deaths they start to creep into the early to mid 70s but yeah i mean from from 65 to about 75 there is this what looks to me to be a very crazy amount of untimely deaths with weird circumstances around them um of all of these people that are tied in with these bands um and when I was looking through it today, I, like I said, I was thinking like, well, if I were talking to somebody that's a mouth breather about this and I start listing these off, the surface level of the conversation is, yeah, oh, they're doing a lot of drugs. Bad things happen when you do drugs. You drown. You know, you you fall asleep and you overdose. In vomit. Yeah. So some of that's true, but then. Isn't that in Spinal Tap? What is that joke he has? <laughs> Worst way of dying, drowning. And no, no, they're trying to solve. There's somebody. You're like, know, you can't, pretty bad, you can't exactly fingerprint and vomit. That's what oh. he says. <laughs> He's trying to vomit, but not his vomit. Oh, then can't actually fingerprint <laughs> vomit, so you don't really know. Yeah. Um, anyway, just what crossed my mind as I was reading through them today was like, okay, yeah, fine. But then you have like the Frank Zappas and the David Crosbys who are kind of the figureheads of this anti-war peace love movement that are like pretty avid gun Mm-hmm. fans that are huge on security like live in a compound have known to be like the cult leaders yeah they're yeah. kind of like you know these kind of like dictatorship type person personas um and i just thought like as i'm reading through again some of these accounts of deaths i thought these are not just regular like a drug deal went bad and the person mm-hmm. got shot in the face but like people being bludgeoned to death and people being stabbed you know, tens and fifties and hundreds of times. So it's clearly a hit. It's yeah. well a hit, but also like, uh, I guess it's one of those, like, it's one thing if you just get held up because you have a suitcase full of drugs or money and somebody wants it. You, I would imagine I've never done a drug holdup, but it seems like you would like Take minimum effective dose. Yeah. You would shoot somebody in the head and then you would get out of there. But a lot of the murders that you see here are like, Somebody really like once upon a time in Hollywood, it's like just which you haven't seen, but at the end, yeah, like yeah. violent murder that's yeah. just like ridiculous, terrible murders. Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty crazy, and again, it's the uh, the ties that you you know Manson gets pawned off as like a crazy person, which he is, but you know in the general public narrative, it's almost like this guy came out of nowhere, but. The more I'm reading. Oh, about but if you things. read like Tom O'Neill's book, like he didn't come out exactly. of nowhere at all. Yeah, like yeah. He was, he was, he was MK Ultra, hundred percent. Yeah. They, whether they, you know, who knows if they had him in a program, but you know, lots of stints in jail, uh-huh. um, all kinds of disturbing. You don't even want to know about sexual, psychological mm-hmm. manipulation, and you know that guy's brain was washed. Uh, you know why is he crazy? Well, I don't know, do that much acid. And, you know, I think, I think he was programmed to be yeah. the cult leader that he was. Yeah. And 
maybe that just happened in a vacuum, but the sure thing I like was going to ask you about was uh, some of the more like uh, seemingly gifted artists from that time. So like uh, Gene Clark was one. I remember them talking about uh, who was another Brian Wilson from the Beach mm -hmm. Boys. And then uh, I forget the third who one. Who also loved Manson. Yeah, before he totally. Was a murderer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Him and, and uh, his, the other Beach Boy, Dennis Wilson, spent a lot of time with Manson. Um but Brian Wilson specifically is one that's got a history of like mental issues and like found just wandering the streets in his <laughs> underwear, that sort of thing. Um, and so when you like start thinking about MK Ultra type operations uh, and Manson having been brainwashed possibly and, you know, or like and then plug a little bit of Zulu Zoolander into there, <laughs> all of a sudden you go like the, there are these accounts in the book that, uh, that McGowan is quoting where people would talk about like Gene Clark. Oh, he wrote these amazing songs and he was really gifted, but it, there were times where he would like on a dime, it was almost like he was a different person, mm. you know? And I get that some, especially like eccentric artist type, you know, they, they're kind of all over the place. They could be moody, um, which is part of the genius. And the other side of the coin would possibly be like this erratic behavior. Um, but after reading so much of the book, you start, one, starts to wonder. I start to wonder. Like, well, early in the book, McGowan starts talking about somebody in that Laurel Canyon scene whose dad was a psychologist and spent a lot of time working on government experience in and around, uh, excuse me, government experience experiments in and around MKUltra. Mm -hmm. Um and the idea of being like creating an operative that they have two personalities inside of them, you know? So, um, that just got me thinking on these artists that they, you're wondering if they might've been in on it or kind of just in on it or idiots if they, that they didn't really even understand that they were being manipulated. Um, uh, not so much wondering if they got manipulated, but more like did some of these artists when they had been, you know, they disappear for a few days and, what we think they went on a bender or, you know, whatever, did they get put into a, into a room somewhere? And did they get very well, it could have happened. I mean, that, I think that's the genius of a program like this is that you could always easily blame it on a drug problem. Yeah. You could easily blame it on a, a bender or whatever. Um, and in reality, you could have had them in a van out in the middle of nowhere and, you know, you're brainwashing them to think some sort of, nonsense yeah i mean how deep does it go the, that's the problem with having a program like this is that we, we just have no idea yeah and the fact that it existed is enough to make you wonder yeah like, yeah well uh you know we know in the case of charles manson it ended very badly you know <laughs> and 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 the, that there might be lots of other even uh you know people speculate about like graham parsons and mm -hmm. even Jimi hendrix and there's people that did they just die of a drug overdose or was there something else going on there? Or, or, you know, if you have people that you've, you know, I guess you've encouraged that whole life. It makes it very easy to push somebody over an edge, you know, where maybe you didn't directly mm -hmm. uh, whack them or whatever, but maybe you pushed them in a certain way that yeah, you knew right. their mind's not going to be able to take much more of this. A little bit of a, column A, a little bit of column B. Some of these people possibly knew too much and were, 
I think it goes around. back to the to the managers and the yeah the, yeah the people. It's the names that you don't know, right? You know, it's Jimi Hendrix's manager. He was, uh, I think he was MI6. I think uh -huh. he was, uh, but like guys like that. Like, what are you even doing in the music industry? Why why are you? Oh, man, yeah, you know? we don't have time to get into it. And I also only listened to that chapter once, but one of the last chapters in this book starts to get into uh, new wave. And like punk and oh, fits you know, in like, the tantrums. Um, no, <laughs> he's you know he's CIA, right? You mean like the the pretty the, current band? The current, the... current again. His his no. He's his, uh, his family's all CIA. Yeah. No, this is talking more about like back when like uh, bands like B fifty twos and mm. uh, Social Distortion and things like that were coming out. But it's funny he, Co or uh, McGowan starts talking about this family a hundred years ago in England, the Copelands. Hmm. He's talking about this and that Copeland, such and such Copeland and Miles Copeland. Before, as After a while, I'm kind of like, Copeland, isn't that Stuart Copeland and scene with the police? And sure enough, McGowan really? makes this connection of Stuart Copeland's family. And McGowan's, the way he brings it all together. So it's this military intelligence family that did a lot of traveling in and around these different government coups and things like that. And then uh, by the time, oh, I think it's Copeland's brother, maybe Miles Copeland. He goes from like, just like you said about these other managers, this is what brought it to mind. He goes from doing all these like clandestine operations to all of a sudden just becoming a booking agent for bands. And then he puts Stuart Copeland in touch with uh, Gordon. What's Sting's real name? Gordon. <laughs> uh, oh, I can't remember. Anyway. He, puts, he connects them. He connects, yeah, and with uh, with the guitar player that I now. That's so funny me, that now you say that. The one Shumway, Gordon Shumway, is it? The one person, actually, I know a couple, but like the one person I know who does work a lot of the time in Langley. Um, also, when he's not doing that, is producing live music events. Oh no, kidding. Yeah, and I've always thought that was a funny combination. I don't know why. Gordon but, Sumner, Sting's oh, real name. Sorry. But isn't that strange that like um yeah, he's he he works he works for the agency some of the time. And yeah. then when he's not, he specifically works in uh live uh music production uh, live events. And I think I do know from the live events he just really enjoys that. So I don't think there's any relationship, but it is, it is like, maybe it's a weird combination. It, it sounds kind of like Hendrix manager. Like, why would you be working as a, as a spy of some sort and then be like, you know, I'm done with that spy stuff. I'm going to go, you know really I'm going to go manage do. a rock yeah. star or I'm going to go book festivals around the country. You know, I guess yeah. it's just, it is a fun job. I mean, working in the festival industry, but yeah, I don't know. But uh, do you know any spies that also work in the live music industry not that or, I'm aware or the, of, the yeah. festivals or music production or I know at least one. <laughs> so many of them that I've come across are not real bright. I'd be surprised to find out that yeah. they're spies. Yeah. Um, which when you were just talking about that, I thought if I were a spy, I might consider getting into the live music business because I feel like I could game that system pretty well. I feel like the spy business probably gets old though. It's probably kind of a downer. 
Oh yeah. I where you kind of yeah. you kind of get to a point where you're like, ah, God, I want to do something else, and then you're like, you know what? I'm gonna do a music festival. And you go, well, that sounds like fun, wholesome. I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah, a lot of youth and vigor, <laughs> but yeah. Um, I could give you some more actor stuff. Uh, well, I mean, yeah. Where do you want to kind of button this up? I, I, I mean, button it up. Go read. You know, the I, Canyon scene. I only David want to McGowan's mention Phil Hartman say. just because. Oh yeah, what were you going to say? Oh, about him? Only because I mean, I he's not <laughs> super tied in to like the Manson family, except for he went to school with uh, Squeaky Froman, which is one of the main really characters when you like watch anything on the Manson family. She's one of the girls that. <clears throat> I think she's still in jail and like you can find even like like a 60 minutes interview from the 90s. She knew he was a graphic design artist for a long so time. So I'm glad yeah. you asked that. Yeah, yeah. He designed like first of all he designed for a bunch of bands. He did yeah, a lot of uh, this, artwork. The CSN logo you can Google it. That's one of the more iconic Crosby, Stills and Nash mm -hmm. logos. Uh, Phil Hartman designed that. He designed album covers for America mm -hmm. for Steely Dan and for a few other artists that I don't have off the top of my head, let's see. Um, but uh, yeah, he was also a roadie for Jimi Hendrix. Yep. So, I mean, like, it's just, he's one of the coolest characters of the 2000s. And he wrote Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Oh, I didn't so. know that. Yeah. What a crazy, we should just do a story on the life and times of Phil Hartman. Uh, That's a wild story, actually. I mean, okay. Even yeah. his his whole life story is nuts. This uh, this I didn't think of his death as a conspiracy necessarily, but McGowan's book says, uh, let's see. He was murdered in his Encino home on May twenty eighth, nineteen ninety eight. The official story holds that it was his wife Bryn who shortly thereafter shot herself with a different gun, naturally, and reportedly after she had left the house and then returned with a friend after the LAPD had arrived home. There is a very strong possibility, however, that Phil and his wife were murdered with the true motive for the crime covered up by trotting out the tired but ever-popular murder-suicide scenario. So, um, yeah, I mean, I had kind of just taken it at face value, but McGowan seems to be of the opinion that there's something something sneaky afoot with uh, Phil Hartman's death. Sorry if there was a blip there, but... Uh... Anyway, so yeah, you were you were kind of closing out the Laurel Canyon scene with yeah. Phil Hartman. Um, and then, yeah, if we're talking Young Turks, just, I mean, I know we kind of alluded to the Young Turks in the last episode, but then just looking through kind of a brief, brief summary of like Peter Fonda, his father Hank served as a decorated U.S. Naval Intelligence Officer during World War II. Bruce Dern's another Young Turk. Um, mm. His godparents were the first uh, lady... Eleanor Roosevelt was his godmother. <laughs> yeah, I remember reading that. <laughs> yeah, and, and he's also featured in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, um, um, one of the main characters, which is interesting because he's a holdover from that era. Yeah, you know what I mean. And then literally in a film about that era, uh, Warren Beatty, his uh, his father Ira Owens Beatty was a professor of psychology, um, but <laughs> as McGowan points out, like. Oddly enough, he was a professor in a campus, a college campus, like right off of Washington, D.C. Um, he was, yeah, his father moved to Newfork, Virginia. Um, and then later he went to Arlington, which is the home of the Pentagon. I mean, like his dad's this high profile psychologist that is not 
you know, documented on government payroll, but neither was Bob Lazar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh man. Yeah. And then another, uh, the Altamont Speedway, you know, that Rolling Stones free concert. Yeah, 1969, yeah, yeah, yeah. which turned into a real big mess because the Hell's Angels were doing security and there were uh, some deaths as a result yeah. of it. One of those deaths was caught on camera. Do you know who the cameraman was? No. George Lucas. No. <laughs> yeah. Really? George Lucas, who uh, spent some time working. Uh, let's see. I want to. I'm almost certain it says here he spent some time working at that lookout laboratory with Steven Spielberg. So the point here is like, we're talking the end of the sixties, George Lucas happens to capture the, the least obstructed camera angle of this particular murder. And, you know, between the Manson murders and then this Altamont music festival, that was kind of a couple of like nails in the coffin for this whole free love hippie movement, hmm. um, which ushered in, arena rock and then new wave. And then you've got Lucas and Spielberg coincidentally become like the largest filmmakers in in the yeah. country, in the world, you know, didn't Spielberg's wife or, or sister also work for the CIA? I don't know. I didn't I think, see that. I think his okay. sister is CIA or it might've been FBI actually. Um, but um, I think there are some connections there. So, I yeah I did I did just wanted to make sure to deliver a little bit on like like we were talking about last time I know we keep kind of wandering into music territory but the thing that was really surprising to me in this book was how much Hollywood and celebrity you know ho like actors and things like that mm. are littered throughout a lot of these stories and of course like those Manson murders were more of like actor type people that were victims i mean sharon tate for mm. instance um so it's, well, it's not, not surprising i mean no, that's, that's the um like i think we talked about on the last one the last episode is that like when that is like the hot medium if that is like the the yeah. culturally relevant space where things are happening it makes sense that if you're working in psychological yeah. manipulation and warfare or whatever you want to call it yes you would be operating in that space and probably it's manip it's it's moved some now to internet and it's probably still some hollywood i think i mean i don't know we've never sold our our souls to the uh you know mk ultra like that's probably where we never made it in music right, big yeah. you know because <laughs> we weren't like you know whacking you know dignitaries on the side while we're playing gigs we would have got a lot further or if we'd we at did. least like distributed acid or something for the CIA, yeah, kind of gone a long Damn. way. Missed the boat on that one. But uh, but we have our integrity, you know. <laughs> um, I just think that a lot of those people. I guess that was my point. Is that I think there's were a lot of these artists, spies. Were a lot of them like like I don't. I think that. Like I said, the managers, yeah. I think there's people behind this. I think a lot of them are useful idiots. You I think they, they are artists. They yeah. are doing their thing. I'm not saying that they weren't real artists. Uh, I just think that maybe their careers were nudged along yeah. in a certain yeah. direction because it was convenient for the people that were pushing that. Yeah, I agree. It's, uh, yeah, in this, certainly in that area or in that era, it looks like we saw who the powers that be wanted us to see. Yeah. Front and center. And I think you're right. You can't count on a 
like some young 20 something rock star whose mind is constantly fried on acid, alcohol and pot to do what you want them to like, Mm -hmm. Hey man, we needed you. We needed you to do this like really specific assassination. Um, Some of them you couldn't, but like, that's kind of, I think his criticism of people like a Frank Zappa yeah. Is that he didn't do drugs. Right. You know, yeah. and there's some of these guys that were more like cult leaders and yeah. it looks pretty bad that they they would encourage a lot of their groupies and stuff mm-hmm. to be, but they would never participate. And it's clearly because yeah. they probably, whether it was like, you know, yeah, spy I think stuff was that or way just, too, yeah. yeah, yeah. There was a lot of them that they, they didn't, um, they look like cult leaders. They did not look, they were using yeah. drugs and rock and roll and all that to manipulate everyone around them, but they didn't actually partake in it. Yeah. And they're the ones that are still alive today. Yeah. <laughs> God, yeah. The amount of deaths that come from that era is astounding. There's a, there's a back in the, I think in the early nineties, they did like a, some sort of re we at our church locally, they did some sort of fundraising to rebuild like a, a parish center or something. And so part of what they did was you sponsors would buy bricks that were engraved and put into the ground outside of the church. And you would dedicate them to like your grandparents or like your whatever, and all these different bricks. Yeah. And one day I'm somebody pointed out, I was like looking down and in the nineties, somebody, Somebody bought a brick and it just says on the brick, pray for Frank Zappa. Oh. <laughs> I thought it was the funniest That's thing I've ever great. seen. Yeah. It's like all these different grandmas and yeah. grandpas. It's like, pray for Frank Zappa. And then I thought like, well, yeah, probably should yeah, pray for Frank sure. Zappa. Yeah. Why not? Not a nice guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is the, believe it or not, the first week I took time to actually listen to Frank Zappa's music. I mean, it's not something you hear on the radio very much. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are fans of Frank Zappa, but you have to actually seek it out. You know, it's not yeah, like, yeah. It's not like Skinner where it's just on all the time. I'm, I've thought he was f- funny in some of the film stuff he did. I think I don't, I've never really listened, liked his music at all. It, uh, man, you can tell it's a pretty active mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool orchestra, like cool arrangements, and. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna have to go listen. You to can some tell. More you can tell why stoners like it because there's like some like the song I heard. I won't repeat it because this is a family podcast. <laughs> but this is really funny, dirty song that I listened to. Well, so it's a there you go. There's a guy making stoner music. Oh yeah, is right. actually not yeah. a stoner. Yeah. So why are you making stoner music? Yeah. You know, it's um, a little too on the nose. Anyway, <laughs> thank you for listening. Uh, uh, this has been a kind of a improv throw throw together podcast sorry if we wandered right. I, I really tried to make an outline more than once between these last two episodes and there's just so much that- the the lincoln assassination is gonna be really hard because yeah. i'm trying to right now and it's more convoluted i mean because it's all like old names that we've never heard of yeah and it's like well, i have no idea who that person yeah. is but there's a history there so anyway thank you for listening to the conspiracy dad podcast um we'll see you guys next time